listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward as we all work together to solve the greatest challenge one in ten of our children face, child abuse. Recent child sexual abuse scandals in faith communities have surfaced questions that many survivors struggle with. Why did this happen to me? How do I understand what happened to me in the context of my faith? How do I make meaning of these traumatic events going forward? While these might sound like strictly theological questions, child abuse professionals respond every day to questions of faith, trauma, and the problem of evil. How do we address with victims, survivors, and the frontline professionals working with them the deep need to make meaning of these traumatic events? We talked to Victor Veith, Director of Education and Research at Zero Abuse Project and a renowned writer and trainer about the intersection of faith and child protection. We discussed how to help children when they have spiritual questions and how to help child protection professionals wrestling with the trauma they bear witness to every day. Welcome, Victor. Thank you, Teresa. So you came to this work as a prosecutor and then went on to lead a number of training efforts at NDAA, at the National um, Center for Child Protection Training, uh, CAST. You know, CACs are very familiar with your work in that way. But I wonder what brought you to the question of the intersection between faith and child protection? A number of years ago when I uh, was serving as director of the National Center for Prosecution of Child Abuse in Alexandria, I took a phone call from a children's advocacy center in California, and uh, uh, the local prosecutor shared with me that they had done a forensic interview with a girl who was sexually abused by her father. Near the end of the interview, they said, we've asked you a lot of questions. Do you have any questions for us? And the girl got nervous and twirled her hair and looked at her toes and said, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering, am I still a virgin in God's eyes? Hmm. The uh, prosecutor said, gosh, that's a really important question to this child. It's a mental health question for sure. It's also a spiritual question. How do multidisciplinary teams respond to that? A lot of times children have questions such as this. And so we uh, had a small federal award. We uh, had a working group, pastor, priests, rabbis, imams, frontline professionals. And we just began to dialogue about uh, the intersection of faith and child protection. And when the intersection takes place, how how do we respond appropriately? And so really it was that, that one case that really sparked my interest. And then as I dialogued, I, I, I realized that many people had, had seen scenarios such as that. So when you think about um, the forensic interview, which is where this arose, are there other kinds of questions that might well come up that children might have a, either about their faith or that an investigator or forensic interview would hear through the forensic interview? Sure. Uh, when, when I teach on the subject, I, I urge MDTs to uh, think about this issue even before they do the forensic interview. So as they look at the intake form, look for potential clues. So for example, I consulted on a case where a child was uh, absent from school, didn't come back after recess. The teacher found her in the bathroom crying and 
uh, said that uh, she thought God was mad at her, and the teacher asked why, and uh, she disclosed that she was being sexually abused by a school teacher, and uh, and so that was all part of the intake. And there's a clue even before you do the interview that religion may have been involved, or the child has some spiritual questions and maybe blaming themselves under a theological construct. So look at the intake, uh, look at the setting where the abuse happened. If the alleged perpetrator is a member of the clergy or closely connected to the child's faith tradition, there's an increased possibility that religion was used in the abuse or the child just has religious or spiritual questions. And then even if there's nothing in the intake or uh, presenting problems, just be aware uh, as as things come up in the interview. So, for example, in one uh, case during the forensic interview, the child made a statement, uh, and then you know my dad's touching me sexually, and Mr. Jesus is in the room, and he's just watching. He doesn't do anything. Well, as it turns out, the child was abused in her room, and there was a big picture of Jesus on the wall, and she was focusing on that image and praying in her mind, asking uh, God to stop the abuse. So just being aware of statements like that as they uh, as they come out. And then if they do come out, um, I urge MDTs, just as you would process physical or emotional injuries, how, how do you, after the fact, uh, um, figure out a game plan to address any spiritual questions or spiritual needs the child may have? So this is going to sound like a little bit of an odd question to ask, but why should MDT members care about these types of questions? Why shouldn't they just say, you know, go chat with your pastor about that or on to the next question? Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question. That is one of the barriers. People often say, well, there's a separation of church and state, and uh, you know, it's not really my area of expertise. I'm not theologically trained. Uh, and most of us were taught as children never talk about religion or politics, it'll get us into trouble. So some of those barriers are out there. Uh, but what I say to teams is, first of all, you're not promoting religion, which is the concern of the First Amendment. That we're simply being culturally sensitive, which is, you know, is part of the National Children's Alliance standards. And religion is really important for a lot of children. And in some regions of the country, such as the South, uh, it's, it's very important to many uh, families. And there's a growing body of research that says we don't pay attention to this, and if we don't address the spiritual questions a child may have, it impairs their ability to cope physically and emotionally. That's the bad news. The good news is if we do address it in an appropriate way and help a child uh, develop a healthy sense of spirituality, they, they do a whole lot better in the short and long term uh, in terms of, of, of functioning. So we, uh, the short answer to your question is we should care about it because we care about the children that cross our desks, and uh, the research is overwhelming uh, that this is a really important issue to perhaps more than half of the children that we work with, according to one literature review. So why do you think, given the importance of this, why do you think that some professionals may really struggle with addressing those important issues? I mean, it's true that they're not theologians and those kinds of things, but do you run into other common barriers or or reasons why they might feel a reluctance? A, a couple of things. One, um, 
we, we have often in our field had only bad experiences with faith leaders, uh, and that's just because of the nature of our work. So when we intersect with faith, it's because there's a faith leader abused a child or a faith community that covered up abuse, or we've seen a, abuse used in uh, the beating of a child or the starving of a child or other atrocities. Uh, and so we have this sort of drumbeat or drip, 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 that that's the only thing faith leaders ever do. Uh, for folks like me who have a background as a prosecutor, pretty much the only time we intersected with faith leaders, they'd show up to court as support uh, personnel or character witnesses for defendants, never, never on behalf of children. Um, so we have to break out of that experience and realize that there are faith leaders who do uh, care, who are willing to help, and especially if we reach out to them with good training uh, and, and advice. Uh, so we have to have a, a different picture in mind. There are a lot of good people that are able to help. Uh, second, I, I think some of us have to acknowledge that we have our own personal biases. I, I was training at a conference, and a psychologist, a psychologist came up to me, and he said that uh, he was an atheist, and he was deeply offended by uh, religion, and he thought kids would be better off without it. And uh, no matter what the research says, uh, he was... Uh, certainly not going to uh, address it. And attitudes like that are very, very uh, problematic because it's not about us, it's about uh, children and what, what their needs may be at a particular point in their life. You know, we've been talking about the children, which are, of course, you know, at the heart of our work. But let's turn for a minute to the multidisciplinary team members themselves. Do you see multidisciplinary team members struggling with the moral distress of their work or questions of faith in their work? Uh, certainly. Um, uh, you know, vicarious trauma, burnout, whatever, whatever verbiage we wish to use, impacts all of us at one time or another. Uh, and um, it can be any particular case that's really traumatic, such as an instance of torture, uh, or it could just be the drop, drop, drop every day uh, very traumatic events uh, crossing our, our, our desks. And um, uh, it uh, sooner or later takes a toll on each of us, and, and everybody on the MDT needs to be aware of that. When you think about that um, impact on one's own faith, do you feel that currently there's a good venue for multidisciplinary team members, not only to talk about the impact on kids and their faith, which I think we're very comfortable in talking about, or at least more so maybe, um, if not very, and to talk about their own, that piece that you're describing, which is, you know, uh, multidisciplinary team members really wrestling with the impact on them of their, their own work and also wrestling, I mean, truly with the problem of evil. Uh Yes and no. I, I think some members of our MDT may have access to chaplains or skilled with uh, issues of trauma. So the pediatrician on your team is probably working at a hospital where they have really good chaplains with some skills with trauma-informed care. Uh, many police departments uh, have uh, chaplains, and if they're intersecting a lot with police officers who uh, witness uh, car accidents and child homicides and other traumatic uh, events, they may have some resources. Uh, but if you're working in a prosecutor's office, a children's advocacy center, or your social worker, you probably don't have the access to professional spiritual care. Uh, and even though you may be part of a faith community, there's a pretty good chance that your pastor, priest, rabbi, imam is not uh, trained on these issues. We did a study in 
2015, I believe, where we looked at the course catalogs of every accredited seminary in the United States, and only 3% were uh, addressing child abuse or other forms of violence. So, so many clergy uh, simply aren't equipped to uh, address these, these issues. Now, there is something exciting, I think, happening at the Trans Sleep Center in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, Julie Valentine Center. Uh, some years ago, there was a pediatric chaplain named Carrie Nettles who went through one of our training programs on uh, the potential use of a chaplain on an MDT, and um, she eventually connected with John Galloway-Williams there, and they decided to do something pioneering, and they uh, have a chaplain who sits as part of the case review team and is available to provide spiritual care toward uh, to children or families that ask it, and also to the MDT members, so a professional could uh, turn out to her. And I think that's a promising practice. I mean, we need to research its uh, impact, uh, certainly, but uh, uh, I, I think it's a, a, a potential that we need to think about. So whether or not um, someone actually takes a chaplain onto their multidisciplinary team, how do you think that CACs can better engage faith communities in supporting child victims, adult survivors, and just really becoming allies around this issue? Yeah, whether or not you do what uh, has happened in Greenville and bring a chaplain on board. Uh, Research in 2017 from Tishman and Fontes documented how often in forensic interviews spiritual questions are coming up, and they found that ad hoc MDTs are from time to time reaching out to local faith leaders, uh, and that's good, but I think we need to be more proactive in reaching out to faith leaders, um, educating them about what trauma-informed care is, uh, educating our mental health professionals about the research on the spiritual impact of trauma. American Psychological Association has published some good resources for psychologists to explore uh, these uh, issues. Um, Developing a really good list of faith leaders you can turn to in crisis. So you've got a child who's raised a spiritual question and wants uh, spiritual care. Just as you wouldn't refer to any old psychologist, you you probably wouldn't refer to any old pastor, priest, rabbi, or imam, but you want those who've gone through some training through the CEC, you understand about trauma-informed care, understand how to collaborate their work uh, with the medical and mental health providers. So it really is CECs and MDTs becoming very uh, proactive in reaching out to these uh, communities. And and I would add this. uh, there, there's a lot we, we can do for these communities in terms of prevention. Many faith leaders turn to insurance companies and lawyers as they develop, say, their child protection policies. Well, insurance companies and lawyers aren't necessarily experts on child abuse, but the local detectives are, the local CECs are, and the local prosecutors are. So we can probably do a, a better job uh, of advising them on, uh, say, managing a sex offender in the congregation or doing a proper screening or uh, what does a good background check uh, look like? So just by offering those sort of services, we, uh, I think, can be um, very proactive in the prevention of abuse. You know, related to that, you have spoken to many faith communities as well about child protection issues. And I'm wondering, given the um, variety, really, of faith communities that have had media attention of late because of child sexual abuse um, scandals. Are you finding that there is more openness to discussion around these issues, or conversely, that people are kind of in a bunker mentality around this, or something else? All of the above, including the something else. Uh, uh, 
some uh, really are resistant to, to talk about, uh, talking about the issue, especially with an MGT, because they think we're the enemy, we're part of the secular community, we're not respectful to faith, so uh, some do hunker down in that way. Uh, some uh, try to fool themselves and think, oh, this is a problem in somebody else's faith uh, community. Uh, but there are many who really just generally care about it, and they just don't know enough uh, to realize what a potentially big issue it is. And those are the folks we, we need to reach. Now, how, how do you reach them? Um, uh, there's not a lot of research on that, but um, I, I have felt that uh, it, it, it's critical to engage faith leaders theologically. Uh, so uh, to know a little bit about their sacred texts, about their uh, uh, views of, of God or higher power, and within their sacred traditions, what what is the the, the hook uh, to connect them uh, with that? And there is some research from Cindy and uh, Robin Miller Perrin saying that it at least on issues of corporal punishment and potential physical abuse, if you engage the faith community on theological questions they have about those issues, then they're very receptive to the research and and moving in a, a different or more healthy direction. And I'm intrigued by that research, and I, I think we could expand it uh, and, and find that if we're, we're reaching out to them in a more culturally sensitive way, then uh, they'll be engaged with us in terms of policies and, and that sort of thing. So when you think about that, I mean, in your own faith tradition, I know that you're a Christian, and so I'm wondering, what have you found to be um, beneficial arguments to engage just your own faith community around these issues? Yeah. Um, I, I graduated from seminary in 2017, and my seminary allowed me to focus my studies on the sacred texts in the Christian community and what, if anything, those texts said about child abuse. So I, I wrote a thesis, which has now been published as a book, uh, and I analyzed the words of Jesus and uh, found that most scholars think that when he said, better a millstone around your neck, drowned in the sea, than divert a child, he was specifically referring to child sexual abuse, uh, and certainly uh, 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 generally he was saying anything you do to harm a, a, a child, God will view harshly. There's this remarkable statement in the New Testament where Jesus puts a child in the middle of the crowd and says, how you treat the child says everything about what you think about me and what you think about me says what you really think about God. And that's extraordinary, uh, even by today's standard, that Jesus is saying, uh, what you really think about God is is uh, determined by how you, you, you treat a child. And in the research I, I did, I learned that the early Christian community in, interpreted these words from Jesus as, as, as a call to distance themselves from the high levels of physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect at that time. Uh, and then after a few centuries or so, the church really moved in a, in a different direction. I argued in my paper we need to get back uh, uh, to, the, to the words of Jesus, take them seriously, and again, distinguish our, our, ourselves through how we care about the children. And there's no research on this, but anecdotally, it does seem to resonate in faith communities. And I think we can do things like that with other sacred traditions as, as well. I've done a lot of work in the uh, Jewish community. I've seen the, the, the same sort of arguments work by, by using references to children in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So when when you're thinking about these issues and talking about them, I mean, as you know, 
the families that come to children's advocacy centers are very, very diverse. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and this is an area that I think many CACs would like to be able to have conversations respectfully around um, the way in which this is impacting families and even multidisciplinary teams. So I'm wondering, how do you think that CACs can approach it in such a way that they're doing that respectfully while at the same time not making themselves seem unfriendly either to people of no faith or other faith traditions? Yeah. Well, well again, you're not um, in any way promoting religion. Uh, uh, that, that would be um, wrong and perhaps unlawful. But instead, we're just being culturally sensitive. We're, we're realizing that many folks who come into our CACs are religious or spiritual, and, and it's influencing their day-in and day-out functioning. And so we're being uh, sensitive to that. And so just as a hospital would offer chaplaincy services, a CAC or someone else might offer that as well, or at least be aware of where you can turn to if someone needs those services in order to uh, uh, to, to, to cope. Uh, a chaplain, uh, a true chaplain, is ecumenical, and they represent the faith of whoever it is that they're working with. And that's the sort of uh, mentality that, that we need to have in working with our uh, clients, including those who, who, have, who have no faith. You know, we've been talking a little bit about um, the chaplaincy program, and I'm sure you've also seen other innovative um, projects or programs in this space as well. Are there any other that you would like to call out as just, you know, here's an example of another type of response to this issue that you, prof- that you found particularly helpful? Sure. In um, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, a program uh, began called Halos, uh, which the Office of Victims of Crime recognizes as a promising practice, and on their website there's some free material folks can download. And one of the creative things they did is they developed a project called Adopt a Social Worker, and so uh, they would get synagogues and churches and temples together and wanted to be part of the project, and uh, each of them would adopt a local child protection professional, and they would check in with that professional and say, we care about you and we're here for your needs, uh, whatever they may be. We also care about your children. And so if there's a child who has a need the government can't or won't provide, you can let us know. Uh, and so it could be as simple as the child needs a dress for prom or money to register for Little League Baseball, whatever it is. And then an email would go out to the local faith partners and uh, invariably somebody would, would cover that need. Here in Minnesota, we have a, a identical program that was modeled after HALOS. It's called uh, Care in Action that operates in uh, six uh, uh, counties. And it's a creative way to bring faith and child protection professionals together. Uh, the faith communities do not witness. They don't proselytize. They are simply uh, providing a, a, a basic service and helping the local child protection uh, professionals add resources to the children that they're working with. So that's a very creative and positive uh, project. One of the things that I wanted to circle back to for a minute, you were talking about physical abuse earlier, and I know that you know, you've been on the forefront of efforts to um, encourage uh, individuals, families, 
but also projects to take this on, really reducing the use of corporal punishment and eliminating that. And so can you talk a little bit, because I do feel that for some faith communities, that, that conversation can be difficult. And I think sometimes CACs have wound up crosswise, actually, of certain congregations um, in promoting no-hit zones and other kinds of things. So, you know, how can one approach those conversations um, respectfully but also clearly? Religion in the United States does uh, play a major role in influencing the usage of corporal punishment. Um, and there are a number of studies that say if you're conservative Protestant, you have a, a more literal interpretation of the Bible, you take uh, very seriously a handful of verses in the book of Proverbs that reference the corporal punishment of uh, children, uh, which often paraphrased as uh, spare the rod. Uh, and if that's your belief, it's very hard to overcome that with uh, research. However, uh, the two studies I mentioned from Pepperdine, done by Miller and Perrin, say if you address the theological construct there, uh, people then are open to moving away from the practice. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Uh, you need to realize how complex a lot of theology is on this issue. Uh, uh, some conservative Protestants say the Bible requires corporal punishment and requires you to use a stick, uh, but many have a broader interpretation. Say, well, it's really referencing discipline of any kind. Uh, and if that's the case, then there is a room uh, to maneuver. Uh, sometimes pointing out to a parent or just asking a question, gosh, there's six verses in Proverbs about the corporal punishment of children, but there's about three times as many Proverbs about the corporal punishment of adults. What, what do you think about that? And letting folks realize, gosh, you know, we don't use corporal punishment on adults anymore because we recognize that as what was done in the uh, time that was uh, uh, written in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and the underlying wisdom is just that uh, misdeeds uh, result in consequences back then, a whipping today, a jail, or a fine. Uh, and so maybe that sort of interpretation works well for the corporal punishment verses as well. I think it's also helpful to suggest to parents what, what is actually meant by these texts. Because if we apply them literally, there's nothing in the Bible about spanking. There's nothing in the Bible about what a child on the buttocks one or two times and cause a sting. And that's not what's being referenced. It's uh, instead references to picking up a stick and hitting a child usually on the back and uh, usually pretty severely causing bruises or drawing of blood. And everybody today would say that's child abuse. So there's nothing in the Bible about spanking as we uh, uh, view it to today. It's pretty uh, egregious punishment. So maybe... Uh, what's being said here is just the underlying wisdom that we need to discipline, we need to reform our children. And since the research is overwhelming, that there are other forms of discipline which are so much more effective in reforming a child's behavior and improving their uh, conduct in the short and long term, arguably those who do something other than public punishment are operating not less, but, but more uh, uh, biblical. Uh, if you were uh, your listeners are, are interested. The Academy on Violence and Abuse, and currently the president for another few months, we just published, it's on our uh, website, some guidelines for uh, professionals to use in, in uh, working on issues of corporal punishment with somebody who has uh, concerns related to their uh, religious belief. You know, you've been working on this overall topic for some time, this um, intersection between faith and child protection What's next for your own um, efforts? What's next in terms of uh, zero abuse project or, you know, articles you're writing or things you're thinking about? Uh, 
the, the most important initiative for me, and I think for child protection community as a whole, is to dramatically improve training at the undergraduate and graduate level. Most of us in this field left college or law school or medical school with a very little training on child abuse, and as a result, we make a lot of errors. So we, we have worked very hard with universities and graduate programs to implement reforms called child advocacy studies. We're currently at 67 such uh, institutions, and uh, I want to continue to expand that. And with respect to faith, we, we need to get into seminaries. Um, uh, and so I, I, I hope to do that in the next uh, few years and get the uh, theologians engaged with some of these issues as well. I think as a country, we need to shift to more experiential training. Uh, so we still need national and state conferences, but we need small class sizes and hands-on trial advocacy courses and forensic interview training programs and crime scene investigation courses. So uh, I want to figure out a blueprint of how we can do more uh, of that as well. Uh, and one of the things that the Zero Abuse Project I've never had the opportunity to do before is to fund some research. And so we're funding some research on our, our CAS program. And in years ahead, I want to fund some research on polyvictimization and some other things that I think get a short shrift uh, uh, in peer-reviewed uh, uh, journals. Uh, and so I want to I want to promote research that I think would benefit the, the field. Um, and then you know me, Teresa. Whatever comes to my mind at two in the morning when I can't sleep turns into a project the next day. But uh, those are some of the, the things I'm currently working on and hope to uh, hope to expand. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about as you were talking was about a concept that came from a, a sort of another um, conversation, another article, which was around this idea that pe- sometimes people who've been sexual, sexually abused, sexual abuse survivors, because of the experience itself, that they have, you know, this anesthesia to faith was the term used, this sort of deadening to that and the way in which that impacts their lives lifelong. You know, have you seen that? And is that sort of a driver and part of the your interest in this and your work in the space? Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, the research on that issue says um, most children are impacted spiritually from the trauma. Uh, the younger you are, the more you're impacted. Uh, and the reason for that, we think, is uh, if you're say, sexually abused at the age of four, every part of you, including your spirituality, your view of God, is being developed. And now, all of a sudden, uh, at this critical juncture in your development, it's uh, you've been physically or sexually abused and perhaps the name of God and it's and it's impacting your your view of a higher power whereas if you're 16 17 you've got more in the bank so to speak more to draw upon and so generally speaking the impact may be maybe of less um, so we need to be aware of all those uh, dynamics uh, as well uh, the other thing I would say is um, Although you may be impacted spiritually, you want nothing to do with organized religion. It doesn't mean that you're no longer spiritual. It just means that you're 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 hungry, you're thirsty, you're you're really crying out for answers. I was part of a team investigating abuse in a Christian mission uh, in Africa in the 1980s, and I interviewed a man who said, "Do you think God under do you think God understands ACE research?" And I said, "Tell me about that." And he said, "Well, I understand it. I was beaten and raped and." Uh, neglected and uh, saw my friends abused in this compound. I got this, you know, A score through a stratosphere, but I've also done really, really bad things in my, my life, including 
accidentally killing someone in a car accident. And, uh, you know, now I'm trying to clean up my life, but I'm, I'm just terrified of dying because I don't know if I die tonight, how does, how does God sort out my life? Does God understand ACE research? Well, that man is being tormented uh, with these really profound uh, questions. Uh, and so even though he wants nothing to do with organized religion, he just needs somebody to help uh, help him sort through uh, these uh, spiritual constructs just to uh, continue to survive because he's terrified of dying. So many, many survivors, they're, they're still struggling. They still may pray. I, I talked to a man in that case who said, I read the Bible two hours every morning before I go to work, even though I'll never go to church again. And I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, I guess I'm searching for, for, for something. So even though you may be angry with God, want nothing to do with organized religion, you still have these spiritual questions that you're you're searching for answers for. You know, it's a I think a good reminder that you know CACs are in the business of often dealing with really existential questions and helping I think uh, survivors and child victims um, struggle with those and wrestle with those. When you when you think about that, the weight of what we're doing and what what would you say are the most impactful things that CACs could do to address both the needs of child victims and MDT members at the intersection of their faith um, and childhood sexual abuse? I mean, it just if you could say if you could do these three things, those would be the most impactful. What would it be? I think CACs should screen for this issue as they screen for anything else. So anybody who's ever been to a hospital knows you'd be. Uh, screened as you're being admitted, one of the questions is, do you have a particular faith? Would you like a chaplain or spiritual care? Uh, the TAC in Greenville uh, does that as part of their screening. And uh, last year, as I understand it, over 400 children and families asked for that service. So just being aware of it, uh, 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 creating an environment where you can talk about it is really positive. Uh, the second thing that we talked about earlier is just being aware as children in the investigation of forensic interview are raising spiritual questions to, to, to be cognizant uh, of that. Uh, third, I, I think uh, we need to be proactive in, in training on this, this issue. I'll be keynoting on this issue at the APSAC uh, conference, which I think is a good indication the field is is catching up to the literature that we, we have to pay uh, attention uh, to this. Um, fourth is just constantly be thinking of cultural sensitivity. Uh, uh, and uh, taking people as 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 they are, and allowing them to share whatever their questions or or concerns are. If we could do those four things, I, uh, I think that's a really positive step. Uh, oh, and I think I, I would add, you know, we have to be proactive in, in in training our faith communities and developing a good list of resources that we uh, can reach out to if if somebody needs pastoral or other spiritual care. Victor, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your work with us. And listeners, stay tuned for more on child abuse. Thanks, Victor. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you uh, for uh, all that you do for Children's Access Centers. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode where we'll talk to researcher Wendy Walsh about the bystander effect and why people don't report child abuse. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.